verses 1 to 17. In the telling of the story of Christ's birth in Matthew's gospel, we read that Mary, a young virgin, became pregnant miraculously through the power of the Holy Spirit without the help or involvement of her fiancé, Joseph. And then Matthew comments in, in chapter 1, verse 22, we read this as our opening reflection, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And the prophecy that Matthew quotes here comes from the passage that we're looking at this morning in Isaiah 7. You probably noticed that as it was read. Now, because many of us are so familiar with the Christmas story and pretty unfamiliar with the book of Isaiah, we tend to read backwards from Christ's birth to the Virgin Mary, which we know about, back to Isaiah 7, which we don't know so much about. And we conclude, wow, here in Isaiah 7 is proof that we can trust the Bible. Look, Isaiah predicted Christ's virgin birth 700 years before it happened. I'm not sure what all that stuff about Ahaz and curds and honey and stuff was, but, but look at this prediction. Well, I'd like to suggest that when Matthew was, was writing his gospel, neither he nor those he was writing to would understand it this way. And the reason why is because unlike us, they knew the book of Isaiah very well. Unlike many of us, they knew the story of Isaiah 7. They knew what it meant. And so when they heard Matthew say that the birth of Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 7, they read forward from Isaiah to Matthew and they applied what they knew about Isaiah 7 to what it means for the birth of Christ. In other words, they understood that Matthew wasn't quoting Isaiah 7 to prove the Bible is trustworthy, but to teach us more about who Jesus is and what his coming means. Now listen carefully. I'm not questioning whether the Bible is trustworthy. I believe that it is. I'm just suggesting that there's much more in today's passage than a simple proof text for the accuracy of the Bible. There is, in fact, in Isaiah 7, a rich unfolding of who Jesus is and what it means that in him, God is with us. And so what I'd like to do this morning is unwrap that Christmas present with you that we have in Isaiah 7. Sound good? Ann and I are at the stage of life where our kids are old enough that we can leave them at home for a while and we can go out for a date without them and without a babysitter. And much of the time, our kids behave great while we're away and uh, there are no issues when we come home. But you can probably imagine a scenario, and I won't deny that it's happened in our house on occasion, when the kids are home alone and one of them uses the opportunity to pick on or otherwise torment another sibling. No. (laughs) No. Can you imagine one sibling maybe hitting another sibling or being mean to them or criticizing them or calling them names or something like that? And, and, and what does the, the, the persecuted child say to the culprit? I'm telling mom and dad when they get home, right? And so the child who's the victim can't wait till mom and dad get home so they can tell because that's going to mean deliverance for them. 
while for the perpetrator, maybe they're a little nervous that, about mom and dad getting home, right? Because for them, it might mean discipline. Well, that is the dynamic. That's the reality that we need to have in mind in order to understand today's passage. Because in it, Isaiah predicts the coming home, so to speak, of God. That's what the name Emmanuel means. God is with us. And God being with us is actually a double-edged sword. Whether God's coming and being with us is a good thing or a bad thing depends on our perspective. It depends on whether we're anticipating deliverance or discipline. And that's the tension that drives today's passage. So let's take a look at it. This passage in Isaiah 7 recounts a key moment, a pivotal crisis moment in the history of God's people. The time was about 7 in the 730s BC. A, a king named Ahaz was ruler of Judah. And these were the days of the divided kingdom when Israel and Judah had split. Israel, also nicknamed Ephraim, was ruled by mostly wicked kings in their capital of Samaria. And Judah, further to the south, was ruled by kings of David's line in Jerusalem. If we could put up the first map, um, we can see where Judah was. If you can see the little green circle there. So Ahaz is king down in Judah. And he's facing the challenge of his life. He's facing a huge life and death national crisis. Now the background of this crisis he faces, if we could go to the next map, is that Assyria, a vast and powerful empire to the north, the world power of the day, is growing in strength. It's expanding southward and it's swallowing up all of the little kingdoms that are in its reach. And and here's what we need to know about Assyria. They are the evil empire. Part of their conquering strategy was the element of terror. They were known to flay their enemies alive. Or to skewer them alive on poles and to leave them there to die as a warning to anyone who tried to stand against them. Cruel torture and spreading terror was part of their method of conquering. Next slide. Well, Israel and its neighbor to the north called Aram or Assyria with its capital in Damascus, they have formed an alliance to stand together against Assyria's southward advances. And Israel and Aram are scared, as you can imagine. They feel outmatched, so they are desperately looking for any further help that they can get. And so they figure they really need Judah to stand with them in their joint alliance against Assyria. But for whatever reason, Ahab refuses. So Israel and Aram decide, we're going to force Judah to join us anyway. And so they begin making plans to conquer Ahaz, to depose him from the throne, and to put a king more to their liking in his place, who will join with them in this alliance. So Israel and Aram, they go ahead twice and they invade Judah. The first time, they seize towns They take captives, they wreak havoc, but they don't succeed in capturing Jerusalem, the capital itself. Phew, for Ahaz, that was a close one. It was too close. But Judah is now 
weakened. They're vulnerable. Their borders are defenseless. And meanwhile, Israel and Aram are regrouping and they're amassing forces in the north and they're ready to come for Jerusalem again. No wonder verse 2 of Isaiah 7 tells us, the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. What will Ahaz do? Who will he turn to for help? He's terrified. He knows he's outmatched. He's got no real good options. You can turn off the, the maps now. So, so let's pause and, and let me ask you, have you ever faced a big crisis? Maybe it was financial. Maybe you lost your source of income. Maybe uh, there was a huge health or, or medical crisis in your family. Uh, or maybe a badly broken family relationship. Or what about our country? Do you, do you feel like our nation is in somewhat of a crisis? <laughs> like, like our future is threatened? That kind of huge life or death, earth-shaking crisis is the context, the backdrop of, of today's story about the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. And so when Matthew evokes this passage at the birth of Jesus, that's all in the background for anyone who knows Isaiah. This isn't a silent night, all is calm, all is bright sort of Christmas backdrop. It wasn't for the baby Jesus either or for God's people at the time that Jesus was born. Jesus was in, born into dark and difficult days. He was born in the days when, when the Jewish people were being harshly oppressed by the Roman Empire. For any of you who remember um, El Salvador or Nicaragua back in the 80s, or you could think of many nations still today, um, maybe Syria, that's the kind of situation, that's the kind of insecurity and violence that they were experiencing in the uh, land of Palestine where Jesus was born. Well, back to Isaiah 7, back to Ahaz. Basically, he's facing this huge crisis, and, and he's got two options. One is that he can actually turn to Assyria for help. Remember, it's Israel and Aram who are currently threatening him. And Ahaz must have been really proud of himself to have thought of this option because it's very clever. If a big bully is picking on two other kids and those kids are harassing you to help them stand up to the bully, what better trick than to get the bully on your side and have him pound those two kids so they don't bother you anymore? Well, maybe Ahaz realized that standing up to Assyria was a losing proposition. Better to join the winning team and let Assyria take care of his immediate problems in Israel and Aram. Of course, the cost of doing this will be that Ahaz will have to surrender himself to the authority of Assyria to allow himself to be their pawn, their vassal. He'll have to agree to pay them heavy taxes to supply soldiers for their armies if they ask, to honor their emperor and their gods, basically to sell out to the evil empire. Well, Ahaz also has a second option. And I don't know if he seriously considered it himself, but the Lord sends his prophet Isaiah to remind Ahaz about the second option. Verse 4 spells it out. Be, calm, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. This could be also translated, be careful to be still and don't be afraid. 
In other words, God is saying, I'm warning you not to do anything. Keep calm. Be still. Don't be afraid. Don't do anything to defend yourself. I've got this. <laughs> and then God goes on to assure Ahaz that God will thwart the plans of Israel and Aram. They won't invade Judah again. They are nothing to be feared. Ahaz needs to do only one thing. Trust in the Lord and remain faithful to the Lord alone. Also, God warns Ahaz in verse 9 about what will happen if Ahaz goes to Assyria for help instead of to the Lord. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God's basically saying you have a choice. You can trust me or you can trust Assyria. You can pledge your allegiance to me or you can pledge your obedience to the evil empire. But if you choose Assyria, in the end, it will not work out for you. You won't survive that choice. Well, it's decision time for Ahaz. This is the most important decision he will ever make. His response to this crisis will set the future course for God's people for the next 700 years. Let's help him weigh his options. First, there's Assyria, the evil empire. Huge, powerful, terrifying. Assyria was a good power to have on your side. You did not want to be their enemy. By any human calculation, they were Ahaz's best and only choice. Second option, there's the Lord. Judah was in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Long ago, God had made a treaty with King David and his descendants, of which Ahaz was one, and God had promised to support and to defend Judah, and in return, the kings of Judah had promised to follow and to trust and to obey God alone. And this had worked out somewhat well, in Judah, a number of David's descendants more or less followed God. And when they did, Judah generally prospered. But in Ahaz's opinion, times had changed. And the Lord could no longer be counted on. I mean, Ahaz had only just become king and look what he'd inherited. He'd already been attacked by Israel and Aram once. And God hadn't been any help. Maybe the Lord had been helpful in the olden days, but these were modern times. Things were different, and Ahaz had to be realistic. He had to use his brains. Can you blame Ahaz? Is he that different from the church today? I mean, many Christians feel like we're in a desperate battle now, right? Like we're being threatened by those who would take away our rights, who would persecute us, who would force us to do things that go against our conscience, to destroy our freedom, to destroy our country. And like Ahaz, we have a choice. We can give in to fear or we can stand in faith. Let me ask you, which of those do you hear when you listen to political talk shows or when you hear Christian leaders speak up on political issues. Are they telling you you have a lot to fear? Or are they encouraging you to put your faith in Emmanuel? God is with us. What's motivating our involvement in politics today? Is it faith, 
expressing itself in love, as the Apostle Paul put it? Or is it fear expressing itself in political calculations and grasping for power at all costs? How popular would Isaiah's message be today in the church? Be careful to be still and don't be afraid. Well, you can imagine the pressure, just thinking about the pressure today, you can imagine the pressure that Ahaz faces to be smart and and to take decisive political action. And and the Lord knows this, and, and the Lord really does not want Ahaz to make the wrong choice. And so twice, the Lord sends the messenger Isaiah to Ahaz, first in verses 3 to 9, then again in verses 10 and 11. That's God's grace to to persist in encouraging us to trust him and to make the right choice. He reminds us, he pleads with us again and again. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, God pleads with Ahaz, verse 11. Whether in the the deepest depths or in the highest heights, God generously offers to prove himself faithful to Ahaz. He will even put on a dog and pony show for Ahaz if that's what it takes. Never mind Ahaz's weak faith. God will bend over backwards. He will do backflips to get Ahaz to trust him. But Ahaz has already made up his mind. Obviously, Assyria is the way to go. Obviously, right? What other choice does he have? We've got to be practical. We've got to be pragmatic about the days we're in and the threats we face. This is no time for religious sentimentality. We can't piously stand by and do nothing. Well, Ahaz, who has this perspective, he quotes Deuteronomy to Isaiah, I will not put the Lord to the test. I don't know if he's being sarcastic here. He may well be being sarcastic. Or perhaps he's quoting scripture out of context to cover his lack of faith. But Ahaz has no intention of trusting God. He's already decided he's going to turn to Assyria and pledge his allegiance to the evil empire. Ahaz, in the process, is is going to break his covenant with God, uh, rejecting the Lord of his fathers, and make a treaty with a new Lord, a more trustworthy Lord in his opinion. From now on, he will depend on and serve the Lord of Assyria. Well, God responds to Ahaz's choice in verse 13. Ahaz is severely testing God's patience with God's people. And so God will provide a sign, but it's not going to be the kind of sign that God had originally offered. Not a sign to strengthen Ahaz's faith, but rather a sign to prove that despite and because of Ahaz's unfaithful rebellion, that God is going to be with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. But now, God's being with his people will be a double-edged sword. Remember our, our two kids waiting for mom and dad to get home? Mom and dad's being with them can be a double-edged sword, right? Deliverance or discipline. So, so what is this sign of Emmanuel? What will it be? That's what it will be. It will be deliverance and also discipline. So, so what is the sign? Verse 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Now remember, before we jump to Matthew and the birth of Jesus, let's stay in Isaiah and and see what it means here. First, it means deliverance. The Lord will deliver Ahaz even though he's been unfaithful. That's God's grace. Notice it's not clear in Isaiah who this virgin is who will have this child. In fact, if you look up any commentary on Isaiah, they'll point out that the Hebrew word translated virgin here can also be translated a young woman of marriageable age. And some think this woman is is a young wife taken by Ahaz or perhaps taken by Isaiah. For sure, everyone assumed at that time in the days of Isaiah that this virgin would conceive in the usual way by getting married and having a husband. Here's the point, I think, of her being a virgin, a young unmarried woman in Isaiah. If your city is about to be destroyed and you are absolutely terrified, you aren't thinking about getting married and having children. No, wedding celebrations and starting a family at that time would be a sign of deliverance, of the return of peace, life as normal, weddings, celebrations, and, and to name the child Emmanuel would be an expression of gratitude and praise. Yay, God is with us. Notice that Isaiah assumes that this child Emmanuel will be born in Ahaz's day. Verse 15. By the time the child is old enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Many think that's about 13 years of age or perhaps younger than that. By that time, before that time, the lands of Israel and Aram will be laid waste. Assyria will definitely come and destroy Aram and Israel before they can destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be saved. Yay, deliverance. Emmanuel, God is with us. Let's have a wedding. Let's start a family. It seems like Ahaz's plan has worked. But there's more. There's the other edge of the sword. There's discipline. Verse 17, the Lord will bring on you, Ahaz, and on your people and on the house of your father, a time unlike any, since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. Yikes, Assyria, the evil empire in whom Ahaz put his trust, isn't going to turn out to be such a blessing in the end. No, the sign of Emmanuel, God with us, is also going to mean God's discipline on Judah. Are you following me? In Isaiah, the sign of the birth of this child Emmanuel, which is the sign of God being with his people, is a double-edged sword. And what determines which side of the sword you get? Whether you get deliverance or whether you get discipline, destruction. It depends on who you trust in. Do you give in to fear? Do you put your trust in political power and military might? Or in faith, do you put your trust in the Lord as your protector? That's the background in Isaiah 7. That's the story that God's people hundreds of years later remembered when they heard the prophecy about Emmanuel. They remembered the story of Ahaz. 
the story of a huge, scary, life-threatening crisis, the story of how Ahaz failed to trust God and put his trust in politics instead when he should have been trusting in his Lord, God. It's the story of how the results turned out to be trouble and discipline for God's people. Because God with them didn't ultimately turn out to be their deliverance, but instead it was their destruction because they gave in to fear and they didn't really have faith in the Lord. And so as we unwrap the gift of Christmas and we seek to understand the birth of the baby in the manger to the Virgin Mary who really was a virgin this time, Matthew wants us to know that, that his birth in addition to being a miracle, in addition to being prophesied in Scripture, that it's also a sign. It's the ultimate sign of Emmanuel, God with us. The ultimate deliverer for those who trust God. And the ultimate discipline for those who don't. Here's my concern for many Christians today, that, that we are going the way of Ahaz that we've given in to fear. That we've turned elsewhere for help and for deliverance rather than to Emmanuel. That, that for many Christians, their, their hope, their trust is not in being faithful to the way of Emmanuel, which is the way of meekness, of loving our enemies, of self-sacrificing self love and witness because our trust is in Christ and we walk in his ways. But instead, many Christians are playing power games and they're doing whatever it takes politically to protect themselves and their vision of our country. Even if it means trusting in Assyria instead of trusting in the Lord. I love the way the late preacher Haddon Robinson describes what happens when we put our trust in other powers instead of in the power of the Lord. He says we're like the fly that lands on the flypaper. It smells sweet. And the fly says, ah, my flypaper. But then the flypaper says, my fly. And the fly is dead. That's what happened to Ahaz with the empire of Assyria. And it's what so often happens when the church puts its trust in politics and in human rulers. Or when we put our trust in the economic system. Or in our career. Or in a relationship or in a certain standard of living, or whatever else we idolize. All of which are being worshipped all around us during this Christmas time. And so into that, God gives us this gift, this sign, the birth of a child called Emmanuel. God is with us. In Jesus, God is with us in troubled times. And his presence with us is a double-edged sword. It means deliverance if we trust in him. And it means discipline if we put our trust somewhere else instead. A reminder to be careful, to keep calm, and to not be afraid. Because if we do not stand firm in our faith in Jesus Christ, we will not stand at all. For those who trust in him, what a Christmas gift. Peace, calm, because we have Emmanuel the reassurance that we don't have to be afraid because God is with us. Merry Christmas.